Hey everybody, it's Craig from the University of Applied Research and Development and it is a privilege to have with us Dr. Nancy Claxton, who's the CEO of Nadal Pan. Hi, good to see you. Hi, nice to see you, Craig. Thanks very much for doing this. Why don't you tell us about Nadal Pan and how you came to be there? Sure, no worries. So my name is Nancy Claxton. I am the CEO of Nadal Pan and Nadal Pan is a uh, a small company. There's just three of us, quite honestly, and we develop behavior change based content for development and humanitarian responders. So I work with large NGOs, uh, typically WHO, UNICEF, um, the International Red Cross and, and other large organizations. And I develop behavior change infused content that uh, trains people how to ensure that what they're telling people to do actually makes an impact. Hmm. So why is that necessary? <laughs> Good question. Um, it's necessary because when I was initially working in development, I would see people telling people what to do. So typically when you're doing a disaster response, it's typically people from another culture, another country, another language, mm. flying in, landing, telling people immediately what to do. And of course, that is rarely well received, much less when it's delivered in such a way that's not taking into account cultural norms, social norms, mm. any of the, the parameters or de determinants that actually cause people to change their behavior. So in emergencies or in disasters, it's actually a little bit easier because people, of course, are on emergency disaster um, mindset. And of course, they're willing to listen. Mm. But that time span is quite short. It's about six weeks that people are willing to listen to something that's about a life-changing event, such as a pandemic. After six weeks, people get tired of it. And so you have to change tactics and rarely do organizations do that. So we help them to do so. All right. Six weeks. So that's a scientifically proven limit of a person's ability to handle that in a crisis situation? It's, that six weeks is about as long as they can tolerate listening to a message about how much in danger they are. <laughs> and so you still give that same okay. messaging about danger and severity, et cetera, but you modify it based on what the, the current the, the current situation is. So even in COVID, we see that the situation mm. changes. There's variants coming along. There's new prevention methods. Countries close mm. their borders. So the situation is always changing. So why wouldn't your messaging and your approach change as well? Mm. So when a country like New Zealand has been in lockdown for 107 days and then we have a new system put in place, uh, speaking from immediate experience, and the system is not really well communicated and we don't understand why we're not being released into the new system, even though all this data tells us we should fit the new system, we don't understand why, that would lead to the rebellion that we're experiencing? That's correct. That's correct. So there's there are about 38 uh, behavior change theories specifically around health, and there are hundreds around other different areas, all of which usually come back to health. So everything's about health, right? So when we look at those 38 different theories, what we do is we look at your norms. So the norms of a country like New Zealand, we study how people share information, who are trusted channels of communication, and mm. that will be different from other countries. And so when you understand what the locus of control is and what the norms are, then you can understand how you can get out messaging as well as get out prevention methods in a way that is acceptable to people and doesn't start the misinformation spread. So when people don't get information that they need or in a way that makes sense to them, they start to fill in the gaps themselves. And that's where you get all these crazy theories that go around 
around different pieces of things like COVID wow. vaccination, et cetera. Right. Okay. So what are you doing right now? <laughs> so right now I'm working on a package with my team for um, a thing called risk communication and community engagement for the COVID vaccine uptake with migrants and refugees for the WHO. So we had developed an initial package earlier this year, and that's being rolled out largely in the Middle East, um, because, of course, in many countries, the vaccine is not even really available. Uh, it seems shocking for people in the Western world, but some places just have very low access to, uh, to vaccination. So they've been rolling it out in the Middle East, and now they're working with migrant populations within the Middle East, as well as people from the Middle East who have migrated to other countries. So working with them about the social norms for each, not only each country, but each tribe or each cultural and social group within that country to understand how we should deliver messaging, what messaging is appropriate, when and how to deliver it, who it goes to, et cetera. So that's what we're working on now. Mm, how important is culture in that? incredibly important and typically people don't take that into account and that's usually where the gaps fall so people when people who are we're talking to are not involved in the development and the testing of the content it falls flat it doesn't work quite honestly okay so how do you do that how do you customize a communication strategy that might be right in say america or new zealand and then you're going into the middle east with people who are not actually maybe from that area they're, they're a refugee or a migrant from somewhere else there's how do you work that out yeah so we interview them we have a number of focus group uh, discussions okay. so we talk to them about different things like what are the social norms that would approve of you getting the vaccine what right. are the social norms that would disapprove of you getting the vaccine what what kind of access do you have to the vaccine? And quite honestly, when there's no access, we typically will say, maybe we should change the focus of this package because why get them excited about something that will save their life if you can't even give that to them? So right. it's a different it's a different focus when there's no access. So there's a, a question. There's ten different questions we ask them, and then we put this on this nifty little chart and basically figure out what the barriers are to people accepting whatever promote whatever health promotion message we're trying to convey mm. so 10 questions and you can figure that out yes for the for the most part there's typically some back and forth but really we get some really beautiful data and we are we're actually able to quantify it so we ask gosh at least 50 different people from that cultural group these 10 different okay. questions we put it into our spreadsheet and we look for a statistical statistical <clears throat> difference between of, of, of 15 uh, points are higher, 15% or higher between the people who are accepting of that, that, uh, you know, intervention of vaccine, let's say, and the people who aren't. And we've looked for that difference. We look for the things that are the highest value and those mm. are our uh, ripe fruit that we can go pick. And that's the easiest uh, interventions that we can uh, suggest at that time period. And that changes. That's the beauty of it. It changes as each phase of the pandemic or the crisis or whatever occurs when you ask those questions and people say 50 questions, it sounds like a lot. We can do it in about two and a half hours, believe it or not. It's quite quick. Okay. So 50 questions. No, no. 50 people from a target group and questions. Okay. Wow. And then you put it in the spreadsheet and it spits out the things to emphasize um, in your communication. Yep. And mm -hmm. then is it done in multiple languages? 
it is done in multiple languages. And so we analyze it in English because we're all uh, English speakers. We all share that mm -hmm. language. We all, the three of us speak different languages, but um, English is what we, what we work in. And then we work with other groups. Of course, we train in whatever language they use. So yes, it's definitely available in different languages. How about different forms of language? Um, I was speaking with uh, Maria Dresba, who's um, worked in refugee camps and worked for World Food Organization and other people. And um, the the ethnicity she was working with in the refugee camp in Bangladesh, they didn't have a written language. So she created a flip book, a picture book to explain things and had trained verbal translators to tell it in a verbal spoken language. How do you handle those different styles of communication? Yeah, we it's we have a number of different ways. So there's an app actually that's called the Cinefin Framework, and we can use an app with no literacy populations. And we train folks how to use this app to go into the community, and it's all offline, so you don't have to be online. And they can go up to a, a, a village or a community member and ask them a series of questions, and they can either speak into the app or they can write a message or they can take a picture. Um, and then there's a number of different prompts where they're they're tapping on different parts of the picture to answer that question. So that's one. And then another one is the exact same thing you're talking about. It's much more low tech. It's a, it's a flip book with lots of imagery. So imagery works mm. quite well. Can you tell us the name of that app again? Sure. It's called the Kinefin Framework. It's a bit technical, I have to say, and it's not cheap. So we pay a group in Wales, actually to use okay. that, that framework, but it's um, it's one of the nicest tools we've found in terms of measuring behavior change, especially in crisis. Hmm. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about your um, capacity building activities you've done with uh, WHO and Red Cross previously? Sure, so I was a teacher and a school principal for many years before getting into public health. Um, and so I worked for the International Red Cross as well as a number of different Red Crosses um, around the world working in training folks on health literacy, health promotion, emergency health um, response, as well as lots and lots of scenarios and simulations. Um, so I've worked in Africa. I've worked in Southeast Asia. Um, we've, we actually did a training in Australia somewhere, but not in New Zealand. I visited New Zealand, but not as a trainer. I apologize, but uh, a beautiful part of the world. And um, what we do in capacity building is, so I'm typically the trainer. Now, I'm from the U.S., <laughs> Who am I to start telling people how to respond in their culture? But I give them the tools and how to do it. So I train typically a, tra a set of trainers. Mm. I train them how to do it. We I train them how to modify the content so that it fits the social and cultural norms of that group. And then they go out and train volunteers or healthcare workers or Ministry of Education or Ministry of Health folks on how to actually implement what it is that we have just trained. So sometimes I have a translator. Sometimes people have sufficient English that they're comfortable enough. It's not an English class. If they're not comfortable, then we get a translator. Um, but I've worked in a number of different areas, as well as supportive areas like fraud and corruption and budgeting and operations. All those things are just as important as the actual intervention work itself and a lot of M&E work. Sorry, my computer is making lots of noise right now. So a lot of M&E work because, of course, if we can't measure it, hasn't happened according to the donors. So we right. need to ensure that we've got the tools that show the baseline, whether it's development or humanitarian work, as well as to measure the impact, the quality of our impact and the, and the, the scope of our impact and what mm. we would do differently or how we could add to that for the next disaster. 
Another piece that we were working on at the Federation is we developed a set of competencies. So during the 2010 earthquake in Haiti, I don't know if hmm. any of you have ever, ever been there during the earthquake response, but it was, it was a mess. Every single aid organization showed up. There was no coordination whatsoever. Everybody was just doing whatever they wanted to do. And it was a disgrace. It was horrible. It was, we did a disservice to the people there. And the WHO at that time decided, hmm, we should probably have some kind of categorization or classification system. So I worked with the Red Cross to quantify what an emergency health worker looks like. So we focused on health. What are the capacities or what are the competencies that the entire response needs to have? And then let's map what each person has from that menu. So you don't have to be everything, but you, we need to know what parts of the puzzle you are so that we can figure out what the other puzzle pieces need to be to have mm. a comprehensive response. So we instituted that for health and it went quite well. Actually, we used it in terms of figuring out who needed to go to a response. You know, phase one, everybody wants to go. Phase two or three, people have less interest, but quite honestly, that's when more support is needed because you see more psychosocial issues, issues popping up three months after disaster. And so we had mapped the series of health issues that were coming up on a 12-month trajectory post-crisis uh, mm. to figure out when we needed to put different pieces in. And then after that, they started to do it for disaster preparedness. They did it for uh, finance. They did it for ops. They did it for everything because they saw that there was such value in it. Wow. That must be really impactful. It is impactful. It's, it's very exciting to see somebody's you know, they have their map of their competencies <clears throat> and they'll say, oh, I want to be an ER nurse or I want to be, I want to work and do, uh, be a team leader of a camp. Okay, this is what you need to do. So there were learning pathways mapped out rather than just who you knew or how many missions you had gone on. There was actually a quantifiable path that you could follow. Wow. Is that publicly available, that mapping? It is actually. It's on the IFRC website. I can dig out the, the URL for you if you'd like. That'd be great. I'll grab that from you afterwards and I'll add it to the show notes. I think that'd be okay. really interesting for people to see that, particularly for those people who um, are emergency managers and maybe wondering, where can I go to? How can I veer off and do yeah. some other things with the skill sets I have? Do you find that with the organizations you work with, people do discover, hey, I've got these skill sets and now I can go off to another part of the world and do another role, but these skill sets really fit that. Yeah, in fact, we would have typically we would have a, a let's say an emergency room doctor or a medical officer for a, a hospital in Norway, <laughs> and he would show up to a response, and it's a completely different context, a completely different environment, and they were very much out of their element. So we learned that we had to train them on the humanitarian context of medicine or our right. response because it was a completely different game. So. I think they they probably struggled the most because they were used to having so many resources around them in terms of people mm. and things and medicines, et cetera, that weren't always available in the field when an actual disaster happened. So much of our training was about that. When people would say, I want to do this, lots of them were career humanitarian responders. So this is something that they did every, this, this was their job. This wasn't something they did on the side. But yet, those, the folks who work in the ERs and who are working full-time for a hospital or for a healthcare unit or what have you, and then they would come for three weeks and respond, 
they would help the rest of us to reset and realize there was a world out there that we needed to continue to upskill and make sure that we were trained on different things and um, that we may not have been trained on before. So it was helpful to us as well as to them because uh, there, there was such a sharing of information and, and capacity. Brilliant. So just Dr. Nancy, as you wrap up, what would you say to people who aspire to do what you do? What are some learnings or experiences they should put into their toolkit before they do that? Yeah, I guess I would. Um, so, so I got into the Red Cross. So the Red Cross is a great entry level um, platform to be able to get into humanitarian work. So I started as a, an HIV trainer in a community center in Chicago. That's how I got my start. And I then went into disaster response. So the Red Cross is quite nice because it has a nice entryway and you can see the path to get to a response. Um, the, the New Zealand Red Cross, as well as the Australian Red Cross, the whole, all the Red Crosses in that area of the world, incredibly well respected. And you have a presence in different responses. So I would say the Red Cross is a great stepping stone to get into the field of humanitarian work. But make sure that you are aware that if you do that for a living, it's different than if you do that, you know, for three weeks out of the year or what have you. It's mm. not better. It's worse. It's just different. And I would just talk to as many people as you can within the Red Cross movement or even, you know, Doctors Without Borders or WHO or what have you. They all have their own culture and the cultures don't always talk together, but they okay. have their different systems, et cetera. So the Red Cross does have opportunities, and I guess other organizations do as well, where you can drop in, where you have a, your career, your job, it's paying your way, but then you would volunteer um, for three weeks or a period of time, and those opportunities are always ongoing, or are they in response to a big crisis? Yeah, very much so. So the Red Cross keeps a roster. So the for the Red Cross, at least, and as well as for WHO, they keep a roster in each of the regional teams around the world. So your regional team would sit in, I think it's in Bangkok or in Malaysia. They, they switch off all, every once in a while. And what you want to do is you'd want to get on the regional roster. So to get on the regional roster, you typically get, typically get on your country roster first. So you might work with the, you know, the, the National Guard or whatever your system mm -hmm. is in New Zealand. And then you get referred for a training. There's, it's just a week-long training to just make sure that you understand what a humanitarian response is and if you're up to it. I would say we we probably have about 10 to 15 percent on any training that don't go on and that's okay that's okay it's a different context i completely get it um but just to see if that's something that you're comfortable with and then they'll send you on a mission to see if how you do if you like it etc and then you can get onto the the global roster if you're up to it if that's something that you're keen to do um, many com companies that you work for or hospitals that you work for are very keen to have you do those missions. And so you'll get paid time off to right. be able to do those missions. And a mission lasts between three weeks, sometimes up to six, but six is quite unusual. And there are some lifers who just go mission after mission. It's not advisable, but it's it's doable. Right. I just want to share your website so that people can um, get hold of you if they want to. Um, so I've also got your LinkedIn uh, URL in the show notes. So what's is it the best way to get hold of you through your website and through LinkedIn, or are there other ways? Uh, LinkedIn's probably best. Um, that's probably the one we respond to the most. Um, I can also give you my e my work email. Can I put it in the uh, chat box? 
Okay. I'll make sure okay. that it's added on. Okay. That sounds good. Well, Dr. Nancy, really want to thank you for your time. I know you're busy. Really appreciate you sharing your wisdom and your experience as well. And just so you know, I never like to waste anyone's time. So I've got a whole page of notes here from listening wow. and learning. <laughs> and I know that our students will do the same. So thank you so much for giving your time. Thank you so much. Take care. All the best. Please don't go anywhere just before I wrap up. Um, I'd like to have a quick chat to you afterwards. After I No wrap problem. Up. So, Thank you. So for those who are watching, those emergency managers who aren't involved in training right now, as you know, emergency managers often have this big binder full of certificates and training and courses that they've been on, but sometimes it doesn't translate to an academic degree. So if you haven't got your bachelor degree or you'd like to pursue a higher degree, uh, getting a master's or postgraduate qualification, do reach out to us. The reason we were formed, uard.org or uard.ac.nz, was to ensure that emergency managers could get credit and recognition for their training or their experience and all their time in the industry. So we look forward to you reaching out to us and also look forward to seeing you on the next episode of our videocast.